Um, the reading today is John 12, uh, chapter, oh, John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, um, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the, the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Thanks, Becca. Um, it, I, uh, Josh? Good evening. Oh, three of you here tonight, that's lovely. Um, it's very nice to be with you. Um, I've enjoyed this day, it's been really great. I kind of feel like I'm amongst my people here because um, I noticed not only that we have another Norwich City supporter in the house, it's a rare occasion that we're both in the same place, clearly. Um, but I also noticed that one of your groups is having a board games evening tomorrow night. So if you're in Connect, board games night tomorrow night. I own about 400 board games. It's my complete obsession. Um, so I kind of feel that I'm in the right place. And in lots of ways, uh, St. Saviour's is very much like All Saints, the church that I lead. Um, I knew David Bracewell for years. And uh, when he retired, the first piece of ministry he did in his retirement um, having been your vicar for something like 26 years, was came and spent two weeks with us and gave us some advice on where we were at at our stage of development. And uh, it was really helpful to have that because the balance of how your services work and the size of your church and the way that you have ministry and the amazing facilities, it's just like being at home. So uh, I feel like I'm in the right place tonight. As Josh said, I am Paul Harcourt, not with a D. Uh, I lead All Saints Woodford Wells, which is a church in northeast London, and um, it's now a network of four churches, and um, our vision is to play our part, along with others, in the re-evangelization of the East End. And uh, to that extent, we've um, just been so blessed by being part of the New Wine Movement, and in the last year, uh, I've kind of taken on the additional task of being national leader for New Wine. And a lot of you will probably know of New Wine, and most of you will probably think in terms of uh, a summer conference. You know, we, we gather over two weeks, usually about 25,000 people down in the West Country. But really what we are is a network of churches like this who believe that by the presence of God and the power of the Spirit, that we can come alive, uh, we can offer Jesus to our communities, and it's through local churches that the nation gets changed. And it's great to be with you, because that, that is, I believe, um, your heart as well, that you are here for a purpose. Now the problem is that it's a lot easier to sign up for changing the nation than it is to sign up for changing yourself. You ever notice that? That's why we have this little season called Lent. And Lent is a time when we, uh, we get serious. You know, we, we kind of like normally embrace the giving up of things to show how serious we are about God. Has anybody given anything up? 
Yeah, a few, a few sheepish hands. Does that mean you've already given up on giving up because you were, just didn't really want to show me? Um, have some of you perhaps instead taken on something additional? Like for Lent, you're going to read a book or you're going to have a special time of prayer or you're going to take on some discipline. She's doing both. She's awesome. Touch her. You might be catch something holy. It's going to be very good. So um, the thing about Lent is it's this time where we, we train ourselves to take our eyes off the things of this world and put them onto the things of God. And we make this statement. You know, Paul says, I beat my body and I make it submit. And we kind of make this statement and, and we, we recognize that we need him. Because if the nation's going to be changed, we believe it's through local churches, but if, if that's going to work, then the people in the local churches need to be changed. And real change comes from within. It's not something that we can psych ourselves up for. It's not something that we can just embrace. It's got to be the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And the thing about Christianity is Christianity is an inside job. Now, I've got this great story that some Catholic friends of mine gave me some years ago. And uh, I just love it. It's the story of um, three Catholics that lived in a cul-de-sac. And um, they became very friendly with one of their neighbors who was a Jew. And they were all good traditional Catholics, and so they would keep the Friday fast. I don't know if you've known any traditional Catholics, but basically what it, on Friday, because it's the day that Jesus died, they wouldn't eat meat, but they would have fish. That's why if you ever go to a Christian conference center, there's always fish on Fridays. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Um, so what they would do is um, they would be embracing their fish on Fridays, and every summer they would be tormented by their Jewish friends because he would decide that Friday, being a good night for, you know, uh, start his Sabbath off in the right way, he would barbecue. So there would be this amazing smell of barbecued meat wafting through the neighborhood on a Friday where they were all tormented because they can only eat fish. So they got together and they said, right, this is no good. We've got to get him converted. It's probably not the best reason for trying to convert your mate, but um, God will take what he can get. So um, they started praying for him. They started telling him about Jesus. They started kind of trying to teach him through you know, all the things that, that uh, come with being a Christian until the great and wonderful day when he's been through all the classes and he's decided to become a Christian and they take him to the church. And in this wonderful ceremony in the church, the, uh, the priest prays for him and at the holiest moment of the whole ceremony, the priest gets out the holy water and sprinkles water on him. And as he does, he intones born a Jew, raised a Jew, now a Catholic. And he's received into the Catholic Church. And they're all really excited. Until next Friday. <laughs> next Friday, they're on their fast, and uh, they suddenly smell the tormenting fragrance of wonderful steaks being barbecued, slathered with kind of barbecue sauce. And they think, oh no, he's forgotten. He's forgotten what it is to be a Catholic. We need to run around and tell him. So, so they leave their houses and they run around quickly and as they run up towards his house, they can actually hear him chanting. It's a bit weird. And they look over the fence and there he is barbecuing these wonderful steaks, but this time he's sprinkling water as well. And he's saying, born a cow, raised a cow, now a fish. <laughs> and I, I just love that story because it would be so great if we could change ourselves or we could change anything from the outside. You know, if all we needed to do was have some sort of religious ceremony you know, sprinkles the water on something and suddenly it's holy. But the truth is Christianity has always been a transformation from within. You know, we have an amazing God who transforms us from the inside out. And uh, this passage that we're looking at tonight, I think really speaks to this issue because 
Jesus is having to articulate for those who are drawn to him what it is to follow him and how you really get changed. So just to set it up, um, it's just after the triumphal entry, you know, um, the beginning of that climactic week of Jesus' ministry. So it's um, just after the Sunday when he's come into Jerusalem, the crowds have acclaimed him. He's on his way to the cross just a few days later. And there's so much excitement about Jesus that it says that at the festival there were also some Greeks who were interested as well. These are probably Greek converts to Judaism or that might possibly have been people who are Jews from the diaspora, but, but they're people who are pretty serious about this faith because they've come all the way from other countries, come to Jerusalem to keep the festival, and they've heard about this Jesus. They've heard about what he does. They, they've, said, they've heard that he teaches like nobody has ever taught before, that he does miracles, and they're, they're hoping that maybe this is the one. This is the one that their hearts have longed for, and this is the one that their religion has pointed to. And so they, they come and they say to the disciples, we, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus is still the most attractive figure that we could ever get to know. Jesus still draws people. People of all sorts of backgrounds, of all sorts of faith and none, are still drawn to Jesus. He is a compelling figure. Something in us recognizes that he alone has the words of eternal life that he's the only one who's got the answers, that, that the love that he shows and the, the way that he lives, that they're so attractive. I was talking to somebody on our Alpha course and just asking her how it was going, and, and she was saying that the, the, the last four or five weeks now, I think it is, the most exciting time in her whole life. And she said, I, I just cannot believe I never knew this before. I can't get enough of reading the Gospels. I love Jesus. I'm falling in love with Jesus. Yet he is the most attractive, compelling personality. And, and if we were Jesus' PR manager, we would probably be saying to him, Jesus, this is it. This is the moment where you go global. You know, you've been saying all along it's not just about Israel. You've been saying, you know, light to the Gentiles. You remember that one? Uh, you know how you said that, that many were going to come from the east and the west and they were going to take their place. It wouldn't just be the Jews. Well, this is the moment. These, these are your people. These are the people who are going to take the message about you out to all the nations and all the countries. And actually, instead, Jesus seems just to try and put them off. And you look at that, you think, why would Jesus put them off? It's a perfectly valid request. So we'd like to see Jesus. And he just starts talking about death and dying and difficulty and picking up your cross and living for something different. And I think the reason is because Jesus isn't interested in crowds. Crowds follow him, yeah, but he often sends the crowds away. Crowds sometimes get excited about his ministry, but then he starts disgusting them by talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. Jesus isn't interested in crowds. He wants truly converted people. And he's not interested in fans. What he wants are followers. You know, fans are fickle, aren't they? I mean, we, we were all fans of something. I know some fandoms like Norwich, you know, pursue. They, they kind of like persevere through our life and we're committed to it. But you probably were a fan of something when you were younger that you're not a fan of anymore. And the problem with, with fandom is that it doesn't really go that deep. You know, you, you maybe honor the person that you hear or worship from afar. You, you might possibly like to sort of be a bit like them. But it's not what Jesus wants. He doesn't want fans. He wants true followers. And the reason for that is 
that it's going to be his followers who are going to change the world, not his fans. And it's important that we recognize that because we, we actually live in quite a dangerous time. We live in a time when we are surrounded by many, many options. We live in a world of amazing choice. You know, there was a time not so long ago in history when you could go to the store and you would ask for shampoo and they would give you shampoo because basically that's just like one option. The only way it came was in a bottle called shampoo. Now if you ask for shampoo, they point you to the shampoo aisle. They've got a whole aisle of Tesco's. Um, my wife Becky is American. You go to America, they point you to the shampoo aisles. They've got about six aisles of shampoo so because there's so many different types. You've got shampoo for every different type of hair. You know, coloured hair, permed hair, broken hair, frizzy hair, thin hair, wish it was their hair. You know, you've got lots of different types. You've got shampoo for every different sort of problem that you might have with your hair. You've also got every possible extract you could put in the shampoo. So shampoo with most fruits, shampoo with almost every vegetable you can think of. You can even have shampoo with coffee in it. Germans are big on that, apparently. Shampoo with honey in it. Shampoo with beer in it. Seems a terrible waste, but that's what they do. You know, there's all these different things, and the reason there are all these different things is because the marketers have worked out that if you think that the product is custom designed for you, then they've got your loyalty. And the most intelligent people in our planet, I think, um, often get drawn into marketing, and they, they spend a lot of time trying to work out how to get our attention and thereby to get our money. And the way that they do it is they make us feel special. Yeah, you're unique, you're special, there's only one of you, and, and there's a special shampoo that's just for you. And um, a lot of their slogans play on those sorts of things, so, um, you know, why? Because you're worth it. You ever heard that? You can go into a fast food restaurant and, and you can order a you know, burger, but you can have it your way if you go to Burger King. They'll do it the way that you like it. They want everything to be to your satisfaction. Because you're at the center of all of this. That's what it means to be a consumer. You have choices. We want to give you choices, empower you, because you're special. And of course, the mantra is the customer is king. Customer is king. It's, it, it's a great way of selling products. It's not a great way of being disciples. The problem with um, consumerism is that consumerism is basically about what I get rather than what I give. And that's completely the opposite of the message that Jesus has. Jesus doesn't want us to be at the center. The customer's not king. Jesus is king. And what he wants to tell us is that life goes better when he's at the center. And, and the problem is, because we live in this sea of consumerism, that it seeps into the church as well. And so we all make choices about church. So you have chosen to come to St. Saviour's. That's right, isn't it? Might be a few people who are saying, no, my wife made me, or uh, um, some of the kids maybe got dragged here against their will. But you know, the rest of us, we've chosen to be at St. Saviour's. Did you realize you have choices? Did you know that? Mike won't want me to tell you this, but you do have choices. So you could have chosen other things. So you can possibly, if you want to, if you find this a little bit kind of informal, you'd go, go down the road to St. Uprights. 
And um, innocent uprights, they're, they're very serious about the holiness of God and everything is formal and proper. And for some people, that absolutely suits them. But you, you found that a bit, maybe a bit too staid for you. So you've kind of chosen St. Saviour's. But you, you could have gone maybe the other way. You could have gone a little bit further down the road and you could have gone to the Living Froth Fellowship. Um, and uh, it's fantastic that anything could happen and usually does at some point over the eight-hour service. You know, and it's so relaxed down there that you, know, it, it, you just... Actually, you, you struggle in that context because it just seems to be completely disordered and you, you know, you're not necessarily able to focus on what's going on and everything's cutting across everybody else. And so you choose to come to St. Saviour's. Now, by the way, please do not map what I've just said onto existing churches in Guildford because I know nothing about the churches of Guildford and you better not get me in trouble. But the point is you have a choice and the reason you come here is because this works for you. This, this suits you, it meets your needs. And so you're excited about being here. The problem is when we make choices, we can start to think that somehow we are again at the center. And this is really slippery slope because as we think as a consumer, then after a while, we get pretty good at knowing what it is we like. Consumers rapidly become connoisseurs. And a connoisseur knows what they like and they know what they don't like. And we get pretty good at tasting the offering you know, testing the worship, testing the sermon, testing the welcome, testing the programs of the church. And the problem with being a connoisseur is that that tips over very quickly into being a critic. And so you start to think, you know, well, I, I didn't enjoy it as much this week because he was preaching, I prefer it when she preaches. Or, you know, oh, my life, I can see him leading worship, and oh, God, I wish it was her. You know, because they, they, he sings songs too loud or too soft or too long or too quickly or too high or whatever. We start getting into that kind of like, well, that was good, that was better, that was best. And the problem with that is you so quickly go down the slope, and actually I find it accelerates. You start as a consumer, you quickly become a connoisseur, you easily become a critic, and very easily you become a cynic. The problem with that is you go, I'm not going to get anything out of tonight because I don't like him preaching. Or you come in and you see her leading worship and you think, oh, I'm not going to get anything out of tonight. And you forget that actually it's God. It's God. It's God who's speaking through the preacher. It's God who's speaking through those who lead. It's God who we encounter in the worship. It's him that we're listening for. And it doesn't matter who's doing it. He's only got flawed people to work through. And yeah, some of them you might find it easier to receive from because you, you, know, you click with their personality or you, 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 know, you find their style easier to follow. But actually, if you're not looking for God, you're not going to encounter God. You just reduce it to a human thing. See, Jesus wants to be king and he wants to challenge our consumer identity and our consumer approach. And the two big discoveries I've made in my life, the first was who Jesus is and the second is what that means for me. And I, my obsession has been discipleship. It, and just understanding that, that to be Jesus' disciple, it, you have to be changed even to start. That's why he said you cannot even start this thing unless you're born again. You, know, you can't even get into this unless you're born again by work of the Holy Spirit on the inside of your life. Something that can't be seen but can be felt. So you've got to be changed and then you've got to be trained because this life is a different life from the one that the world 
models and encourages and, and so easily seduces us into. And this passage, I think Jesus is setting it out. He, he's making sure that those who follow him know what it really is that they're entering. And so it speaks to us today just as much as it spoke to these first Greeks. And he says really three things. This is Jesus talking to prospective disciples, talking to us today just as much as them then. And what he's saying is that this is all about life. It's not an upgrade. It's not like add a little bit of Jesus to your life and things will go slightly better. What he's saying is he wants to completely replace the way that we live. Jesus, a couple of chapters earlier, has said, I have come in order that you might have life and life in all its fullness. Now what that means is, until and unless we receive what Jesus has come to bring, we are not alive. Slightly worrying, isn't it? You may be walking around, but you're not alive as God thinks. Because Jesus said, I have come to bring you life. And when you receive that life, what he wants is that that life becomes a flourishing, abundant, overflowing thing in you. That it's life in all of its fullness. And to the extent that we recognize that and learn to cooperate with the work of his spirit in us, then that can become our experience as well, more and more. But he says three things about this life. They're verses 24, 25, and 26. It's really easy to follow tonight. The first thing he says in verse 24 is this is his life. So if you look at verse 24, it says, Truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, he's just talked about the hour has come, which in John's gospel means the cross. He's just talked about the Son of Man being glorified, which in John's gospel means the cross. And then he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, and therefore he means the cross. He's talking about himself. What he's saying is that when, when I fall to the ground and die, I remain, if I didn't die, I would remain only a single seed. But if I fall to the ground and die, I produce many seeds. He's saying that the, the, the way that God has set up even the natural world is that, that through death comes multiplication. And normally when Jesus is talking about his death on the cross, he talks about his death as a saving death. That what he does by going to the cross for us is he takes our sins onto him. He deals with everything that separates us from God and from life. And he gets it out of the way so that we can come back into relationship with God. And that's all true. But here he adds this little twist. And he says that his death is not just a saving death, but it's also a multiplying death. What lies on the other side of the cross is not that the single seed has died, but it's that the many seeds are produced. And that means that his life has been multiplied out to us. When a seed dies, it produces many of the same. That's the point. It produces many of the same. Jesus is saying that, that through his death on the cross, his life is going to be multiplied into his followers. So that now, as we stand on the other side of the resurrection as we stand on the other side of the gift of the Holy Spirit, there are lots of little Jesuses running all over the world. Which is why we're called Christians. Because people looked at us and they said, oh, you remind me of that guy you keep talking about. You're, you're his people. And, and it's even more significant than that because Christian means one who follows Christ, but Christ means anointed. So Christian is somebody with a little anointing. We have the same thing that Jesus has. And 
you think, well, yeah, but we're not Jesus, are we? It's true. We're not that much and we're not that many. But have you noticed how often Jesus talks in the Gospels about quality rather than quantity? How often he uses the illustrations of little things? So he says, you know, the kingdom of God, it's, you need to think about it like this. It's, it's like a mustard seed. It's tiny. But if it grows, it becomes this huge tree. Um, he talks about yeast. He says, you know, it's almost invisible, but you add it, and then it works through the whole batch, and it affects everything. Uh, he talks about salt. Now, I'm not much of a cook, but even I know that you don't shovel it in there. You just add a little bit, don't you? But Jesus said, you know, the, the point about the salt is that it's the quality of the salt that matters. So the salt loses its saltiness. It's useless. You throw it out. But salty salt, salty salt works. I think what he's saying is that his life in us changes things. It's the real thing. You want to move mountains? You don't need much faith. You need tiny faith. You just need the right sort of faith. Mustard seeds of the right sort of faith. It's all about quality, not quantity. So Jesus is saying it's his life in us. That's what we need to learn to look for and to re receive more and more and to grow in. Now, the second thing he says in verse 25 is not just his life, it's heaven's life. And there's this great contrast here. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. But anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, the problem with that verse is that a lot of us, um, we read it in terms of ascetism. You know, that, that we're not to enjoy the things of this world. You know, that we're, we're to become monks and wear hair shirts. And basically, Christianity becomes all about pain and suffering and deprivation. But that's nothing like Jesus, is it? Because Jesus loved the people he was, he was with, and he loved the good things that God gives, and he loved to bring the two together in parties. Jesus was celebrating. Jesus was feasting. Jesus was fun, and he loved the things that God gives. But the point was, he didn't live for them. And so often, the good things that God gives become almost like God to us. And we go to them for the things that we should go to God for. So instead of going to God for comfort, we go to the chocolate, or we go to the bottle, or we go to the credit card, or you know, we look for the things that God gives, and we make them God. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that you know, if, you really, if you look to those things rather than to God, you're going to lose life. But if you, by contrast, hate those things and live for the things that last forever, then you're going to receive life. And that life that Jesus gives is eternal. It's heavenly. It's, it's the, the powers of the age to come that we have tasted and seen. We know, we experience already. And it's good. And nothing else satisfies like this. Nothing else can satisfy you in the way that a relationship with Jesus can satisfy because that's what you were made for. And you know, we're relational beings. That's the reason why the highest highs of our lives and the lowest lows of our lives are all about relationships. Our greatest joys and our greatest sorrows, they're relationships because ultimately we're made for relationship and we're made for relationship with the one who made us. And you're never going to be satisfied until you experience that. And as we pursue that, that's where our satisfaction comes from. And, and that means that life itself is going to burst, not just into us, but through us as well. And Jesus taught us to pray about his kingdom coming. And he said, when the kingdom comes, it's as if the will of God is done on earth as it is 
in heaven. And as eternal life comes into us, heaven's life comes into us, it means anything's possible. Because it's not just on earth, it's in me. You ever prayed that? Pray the Lord's Prayer that way. Pray your will be done in Guildford, as in heaven. If you really want to get radical, pray your will be done in me, as in heaven. You're part of the earth, right? Guildford's on the planet somewhere. That's what it means to pray that. Heaven's life is coming from heaven, it's bursting through us, and it transforms. That's why a couple of chapters later, Jesus is going to say, anybody, anybody who believes in me can do the things that I've been doing. Even greater things than these you can do. Because it's not just his life, it's heaven's life that's coming into us. The one that's right, the one that's fixed, the one that's going to last forever. And then a a third thing he says, it's not just his life, it's not just heaven's life, it's a life of hearing and obeying. Can I see what I did there? Three three H's, it's alliteration. I scare myself sometimes. Um, But what he's saying here is that we get this life as we hear and obey. And verse 26, when you look at it, is kind of the opposite of what you might expect. Um, Whoever serves me must follow me. Now, for years I looked at that and I thought, that's the wrong way around, isn't it? I would expect Jesus to say, look, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to become a servant. That would make total sense to me. If you want to follow me, then you need to understand that it's about being servant-hearted and serving the world in my name and loving others in my name. But he doesn't say that. What he says is, whoever serves me must follow me. And I think what he's saying is, you do not get to choose the good things that you do. If you really want to serve me, it's not just about doing good things, it's about following me. It's about hearing and obeying and doing the things that I want you to do. There's a danger of discipleship that we could easily make discipleship again about us, us at the center, choosing to do good things. And Jesus says, it's not like that. If you want to serve me, you have to follow me. That means hearing what I'm saying and doing the things I ask you to do. Discipleship is he leads, we follow. Uh, Obedience is not like some big thing that you decide to embrace, some massive sacrifice. Obedience just starts with little things. It's when he says, I want you to go across the room and talk to her. He looks lonely. I want you to sit with him this week. You've been so blessed this week by the things that I've given you, but it's not just for you. I want you to give it away. Uh, I want you to come aside with me and rest. What we need to do is we, we need to learn to hear so we can obey, so that we can follow. Now, in, in a church like this, probably loads of you are really comfortable with the whole idea that we have a relationship with Jesus. You know, we've been taught that out of the Bible. We absolutely believe that. And yet we often live as if we don't have a relationship with him. You know, we check in on Sundays and we learn what we ought to be doing. And then the rest of the week, it's as if Jesus is still here. He got locked in the building at the end of the night. Relationship is talking, listening, obeying. It's intimate. It's close. Jesus wants to be in your ordinary every day. He he wants to be interacting with you through the day. And one of the problems is that we just haven't learned how to listen. We haven't learned how to hear his voice. We haven't learned how to get those little nudges. And and if you're faithful on the, the little nudges, by the way, that's when you get the bigger ones. If you really want to grow in the prophetic, if you really want to hear his voice, then be obedient in the little things. And then the big ones will come. 
You know, we know that he leaves us beside still waters and there he restores our soul. And yet, actually, most of us don't ever get still. You know, I I often think I live my life in the washing machine. You know, it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, just being tossed and turned all through the week. The week is so busy, so hectic. It's not surprising I don't hear his voice because I don't practice being quiet and listening. But when we do, then we begin to hear and then we can obey. And what he says is this is, this is the path to glory. So where I am, my servant will be, and there you'll be honored, just as the Father has honored me. It's an amazing picture. Uh, I don't know what happened to the Greeks. We don't know. We don't know what they made after all of this. We don't know whether they decided that this is a man worth following or whether they decided the cost was too high. But I think Jesus is still speaking these same words to us. You know, if you searched your heart, is, is there any, any sense in which perhaps you're, you're, you're a fan of Jesus more than a follower? Is there any sense in which perhaps he's saying to you tonight, I want you to hear my voice. I want you to follow me. I don't just want you to commit to doing good things. I want you to hear what I'm saying and do those things. And I just have this sense tonight that he wants to open our ears and help us to listen again and come back to that place where we can start to walk in the fullness of life. Christianity is so frustrating if you make it about good things. really is. So frustrating. So exciting. If it becomes a dynamic, moment by moment, interaction as you... You sometimes you hear his voice, you feel his heart, you get that little nudge and you step out. and All those good things that you do, that you know, so often we do them, we have no idea what happens. The, as you follow him in those little nudges, so amazing. Those conversations, they become so fruitful. Those little things, they, they, they often, you think, all I did was I just felt a nudge. I went, I followed, I took 20 seconds of courage. And God did amazing things through it. Why don't we stand? We're going to have a little chance to reflect on where we're at tonight with the Lord. And then we're going to pray for some people. Even when he challenges us, God does it because he loves us so much. He's got so much more for us to receive. And sometimes there are times when Jesus is being challenging like this. And it's not because he's trying to drive us away. It's because he's truly trying to draw us in. And let's have a sense, maybe it's one of those nights tonight. It's what the season of Lent is really meant to be about. It's not, it's not about self-mortification. It's really about receiving his life, having more of him. So let's just be still. You might like to close your eyes. And I ask Holy Spirit that you would begin to move in this place. Lord, anything that I've said that's not, not right, that doesn't line up with your truth, I just ask it would be blown away. But out of your word, we ask you to speak into our hearts. 
We just say again, Lord, it's your life. It's your life in us. Thank you for the amazing privilege. Thank you for the hope of glory. Christ in you.